turn please to Genesis in chapter 1. I want to read beginning with verse 26. Genesis chapter 1. And I want to read to the end of Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1, 26 through the end of chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is the breath of life, I have uh, given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, heavens and the earth, when they were created, and the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the ground and watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Asia. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Uh, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was, found, uh, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord um, God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not and were not ashamed. Now, I come to this passage by way of last week's passage, which was out of Psalm 25. You might remember it. It said that the friendship or the secret counsel of the Lord is with those who fear him. And to them, to those, he will make known his covenant. And so what we're doing is taking up in this semester a a look-see, a study, a consideration of these covenants, this covenant of God. And and the reason being, with this objective to know the friendship or the secret counsel, if you will, of the Lord. You remember I quoted an old dead theologian named Gerhardus Voss concerning this friendship. And here's how he put it. He says, it, this secret counsel of friendship, is the intimate converse between friend and friend as known from human life where there is no reserve, but the thoughts and feelings of the heart are freely exchanged. In other words, this sense in relationship with God that we will, by knowing, his counsel, by knowing his covenant, will know his heart. Voss goes on to say that the means by which, of course, that we know this friendship with God is this. He says, the secret intercourse of the Lord is with those that fear him. And he will teach them his covenant. That is, those who who will eventually be taught the very covenant of God and become friends with God to know his secret counsel, if you will, to have this intimate interchange with him, to know him, are those who fear him. That is, those who know who God is and who they are and thus revere him as God. And to know him as God, to revere him, to fear him as God means that one would submit your whole being to him because he's God. Your whole mind to think his thoughts. Your own heart to value what he values. Your own strength to trust him for your very life. Your own soul. And so for those who fear God, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll teach you something. I'll let you know something. My covenant. And in so knowing my covenant, God in a sense is saying, you'll really know me. So it seems wise for us to spend some time to consider this notion of covenant. Covenant is pervasive, as we said, uh, throughout the scripture of an old covenant and a new covenant. The whole of the the Bible is organized in in that way, those sections of old and new covenants. Uh, When we read through the scripture, we find God making covenant with Noah, for instance. And it's called by some the covenant of preservation, where God promises to preserve the seasons, preserve the earth until his final will is accomplished. We see that God makes covenant with Abraham. This covenant of of promise, wherein he promises not only to bless Abraham, but through Abraham to bless uh, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth. Someone will come from his seed to bless all of the families, all of the nations 
of the earth. We see this covenant that God makes with Moses, this covenant of law where the, the nation is formed. We see a covenant that's made with David where the, the, a king is promised and a kingdom comes to be. We see this covenant that God makes in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, which some have called the, con, uh, the covenant of consummation, where Jesus brings all of this to fruition so that by faith in him there is eternal life, that all that God has promised comes to be fulfilled in this person of this one, Jesus, who is the Lord of the new covenant. And so we see covenant being pervasive throughout, uh, throughout all of the scripture. But when we do this, because we, we want to understand God, so we're working our way through the scripture to, to see uh, covenant. It's fascinating to know that in the days of Moses, this idea of covenant and this form of making or cutting a covenant was very well known. It was as well known in those days as signing a contract is to us. It was as well known in those days as one nation making a treaty with another nation is well known to us. It was as well known to them uh, as, as having a constitution to govern a group of people is as known to us. And, and so it was just a well-known form. And so, so as the Bible speaks of covenant, as, as Moses writes of it, as, as God has revealed himself through it, uh, even all the way back in the Pentateuch, these first five books of Moses, uh, these opening passages even of the scripture, covenant is well known to the people that, that get it. They would understand that. They would understand that covenants bind parties, bind people together in a relationship and define what that relationship is to be. Most especially they would understand a covenant that was cut or made between a king and his subjects or a suzerain and the vassals, a king and his subjects. They would understand that and they would understand that when a, when a king was going to enter into a relationship with these subjects that he would sovereignly, because he's the king, define their relationship. And, and this covenant would take this kind of form. First, there would be an introduction or a prologue or a preamble kind of thing. Just sort of saying, the king would be saying, this is who I am and this, is the, th this has been our relationship. This is who I am. This has been, this will be our relationship. We're going to lay that out historically and, and also in the future. So it shouldn't surprise you that when God comes to Abraham to make a covenant, he starts out by saying, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. This is who I am. I'm the one who will protect you and has been protecting you and I'm the one who provides for you and, and will continue to provide for you. That's who I am. It shouldn't surprise you when God makes covenant with Moses, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, this is who I am, and I'm going to make this covenant now, and I'm going to define our relationship, I'm going to lay all of this out, but, 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 but this is who I am. And so it starts out that way, and so any covenant would have that kind of introductory line of, of this is who I am, I want to tell you who I am and what a relationship has been. And then secondly, in, in, in the midst of this covenant, there would be a stipulations laid out, responsibilities defined. The, the king would define his responsibilities to his subjects, what he promises. And, and then he would say, now this is what I expect out of you. These are your duties. These are your obligations. This is what expect, is expected out of you. These are your responsibilities. And then there'd be sanctions to that. They'd say, if we do this, this is the blessing that comes. If we don't do this, this is the curse that will come upon you. 
And then finally, there was generally some kind of a seal to this, some, something that would mark it, something that would say, this is authentic, this is real. So as we mentioned last week, we, we give wedding rings as a sign during a wedding ceremony of that kind of covenant. Uh, uh, contracts are signed and, and, they're, and they're, 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 they're recorded. And that says, this is really important. And in some days, in some situations, there could be a literal seal that's put on that, the seal of the, the one making the covenant saying, this is really true, this is really from me, I'm really going to perform this kind of thing. And so, you know, and in God's covenant, he signs them various kinds of ways. With Noah, I gave him a rainbow. With Abraham, he gave him circumcision. With Moses, he gave him Passover and, and so forth. And we see that with us in the terms of how Jesus signs and seals his covenants with us. It's by way of baptism and communion. So we see these kinds of signs, and we see those signs, we say, oh yes, there is a relationship. Oh yes, there is an agreement. Oh yes, something's been made here. And so in the days of Moses, these covenants were well known. So it's no surprise that God would use that, or even, since he's God, providentially had already prepared that way so that he could use it to explain his relationship with his people. Thus, some would say a covenant, and we mentioned this last week, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered, right? It's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Sovereignly administered, which means it's administered by the sovereign, by the king. He's the one who who defines it. There's no real negotiation here. We don't like that. But when you do business with a king and you're the subject, there's no real negotiation there. And so when a king makes a covenant with subjects, the subjects realize there's no negotiation here. But it's a bond. It binds the two together in a particular relationship defined by the covenants. And it's in blood, meaning that the sanction is, it's so significant, so important, that both parties realize that if one of them reneges on the covenants, then that one should die. It's that significant. So it's a bond. It's a binding of people together in blood. That's the seriousness of it. And it's administered to by the one who is, who is the sovereign. Now for the subjects, that is the ones who are in this relationship now with the king, it gives them purpose because it defines the purpose of their lives as defined by the king. It gives them worth. The greater the king, the greater the worth. And so we see all of that. And it should also then give them great assurance to know that the king has bound himself to treat us in a particular way. The king has bound himself to treat his subjects in a particular way. So now they can be assured of it. They go, oh, I have this piece of paper that says that he's going to treat me this way. And so I can live this way and be assured that this is how all that's going to work out. So, so anyway, that's the form of it. And what we're going to do now is take our walk through the scripture and see various covenants so that we can understand God and understand his relationship uh, with us. Now, I trust that you already picked up from our worship service all the readings and so forth that we've done, songs that we've sung, prayers that we've made, confessions that we make that this God is the maker of heaven and earth, that uh, we're thinking through what would be entitled the covenant of creation, how it is that God binds himself to us and us to him from the very beginning. Now, there's one bit of danger here, and that is that the word covenant isn't used until Genesis chapter 6. 
So it isn't used in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It isn't that Moses said, here is the covenant of creation. Here's the covenant that God begins here with all of this. But, but we use that expression because the Bible uses that expression of, of covenant. In Hosea, in chapter 6, uh, God speaking through Hosea says to us that there was a covenant from the very beginning. It's spoken in rather negative terms, but the verse is this, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. He's speaking of, of ancient Israel and Judah. It says, but like Adam, all right, so we go Adam, okay, where was he? Back in the garden, at creation. But like Adam, they, the people to whom Hosea is addressing, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. In other words, he's saying that Adam transgressed the covenant. These people have transgressed the covenant as well. And so there's this sense of understanding from the prophets that covenant is something that existed from the very beginning, defining, laying out this relationship between God and his creation. Not only that, but as we read in Genesis chapter 6 of the covenant that God made with Noah, he speaks of establishing a covenant. And that's, that, that, that sense is that he's confirming it, meaning there's a covenant before this. This is part of this whole covenantal tradition. And so we use covenantal language there because the Bible doesn't, of creation. And then secondly, because all the, all the elements of covenant are here. We have two parties. We have God and, and, and creation. And it has this one who is the sovereign and who defines all of that. He speaks about creation. He speaks about those responsibilities that, that the creation has. In other words, he, he even, everything, he sets the sun and the moon in their place. He says, all right, this is the sun. It's going there. It's going to do this. Here's the moon. It's going there. It's going to do this. He puts the fish in the water. He puts the birds in the air. He puts the plants on the earth. He directs everything about his creation. He's the sovereign when he's saying, all right, this is your responsibility. Fish, fill up the sea. Birds, fill up the air. Uh, Plants, fill up the earth. Uh, Sun, do your thing. Moon, do what you do. And so he is the one who establishes all these things. And then ultimately, of course, he creates human beings. He creates us with particular, as we'll see, stipulations, particular responsibilities as to as to who we are. And then he seals that with his very own word, his very own presence, and with a bond of blood, as we can see in what will come. And so what I want us to do in the context of covenant then is to try to understand this relationship that we have with God from the, from the very beginning. It speaks to us first and foremost about this one who makes this covenant about about God. The very first words, very first sentence here in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from the very beginning, as we see this one who is the maker of this covenant, what we learn about him is that he is outside of creation. I mean, he existed before this creation. The creation is not God. He's outside of it. Therefore, he is the one who is self Existent. He exists outside of his creation. He exists outside of all of this. And so God is the one who is self-existent. Very important for us uh, to, to realize that. We realize that he is uncaused. 
to realize in another sense, unless he reveals himself, he's unknowable because there's no one really like him. I mean, you and I can get to know each other because we like each other. I sort of get you and you sort of get me. We don't always like what we get, <laughs> but, we, but we understand each other, don't we? Because we're human beings, we, we get that. We, we get our animals, kind of. They get us, kind of. You get a sense they get each other a lot better <laughs> than we get them, right? But God is God, and there isn't anybody like him. And so how is anyone going to know him, really, unless he reveals himself? He's outside of creation. He's self-existent. He's uncaused. And he is also, he also is one who answers to no one. He's God. And so it's important for us. You see, what we're trying to do here is understand our lives in the midst of life. Understand our lives in the midst of history. How do we do that? Well, go back to the beginning and find out about this one who started it all. This one whose idea it is. This one who's sovereign over all of it. Who is he? And I'm to relate to him. And so to realize there's one to whom I relate, because he has caused that, um, who is self-existent. He's self-sufficient, meaning he doesn't need anyone or anything. He doesn't need this creation at all. God does not need worshipers. Worshipers need to worship him, but he doesn't need worshipers. God doesn't need defending. He defends us, but he does not need anyone to defend Him, right? He is God. He's self-sufficient in all of that. Not only that, of course, God cannot be coerced to do anything. You know the old mafia line, give him an offer he can't refuse. God can refuse anything because there's nothing we can offer to him that he needs. We can't coerce him. We can't say, if you do that, we'll do this. So he can't be tricked, he can't be coerced into doing something outside of his nature, something that he isn't, and so he's self-sufficient. God needs no extra value. When we speak of glorifying him, we don't say that we're adding to his glory, we're simply reflecting the glory that he has. Creation doesn't add to his glory, it just reveals it, it manifests how great he is, but he doesn't add to him, he's self-sufficient, self-existent, self-sufficient, that is this one, and he's eternal, he's no beginning, no end, which means he always has been and will always be. Which means he's unchangeable. Because he's perfect in his being, he's unchangeable. Thus, he's dependable. We can trust him. Because he isn't going to change. If he says, I am love, he is. He always will be. If he says, I am just, he is. And he always will be. If he says, I'm merciful, he is. And he always will be. If he says, I'm omniscient, he is and always will be. We know all those things of him. They don't change. And it's because he's eternal. He always has been, always is, always will be. And not only that... We realize there's this one who is eternal. He's inescapable. You can't hide from him. You can't get away from him. You can't say, oh, he won't be here on Tuesday. Because he is. He's eternal. So this is the one who makes this covenant. He is our creator. That is, he's the author of all of this. Thus, he has 
the authority of it. You know, one of the great things I think about being a scientist, if I were a scientist, I think this would be a great thing about it, is that if you ever do make a discovery, you get to name it. Right? And you read all these scientific discoveries and we go, why is it called that? Well, because somebody named George found it. And so he named it George. Or whatever it is, after his kids, or, or some name. And you go, wow, what a cool deal. Why does he get to do that? Because he found it. He has the authority over it. God, who is creator, is the author of that, and the author of all of his creation. So when he says, that's the sun, it's the sun. When he says, that's the moon, that's the moon. When he says, that's a boy, that's a boy. When he says, that's a girl, that's a girl. When he says, that's a dog, that's a dog. He has the authority, you see, because he's the author of it. It's his. He says, I'm going to put the sun there. Why? Because that's where it goes. I'm going to make human beings like this. Why? Because that's what a human being is. Because God knows that because he's the author of all of this. And so, you see, as we think this through and as we understand that God is the creator and who he really is to understand where we are in the midst of this as those made by him for him. He's the creator of all of that. And that's an amazing thing for us, that this very one who is our creator even considers us, even uh, thinks about, even thinks about us. But then we realize not only is he this one who is our creator, and then we have to ask ourselves, well, who are we in the midst of that? Certainly the ones created. But what's amazing to us that we are made in his image. You know this, Genesis chapter 1, which I read verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, that is a huge contrast with what he said about everything else. For instance, in verse uh, 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And so it was. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man not according to their kind, but in some sense like us, in our image, so that we as human beings uniquely reflect him. That's what an image is. An image isn't the real thing. It isn't just identical. It isn't the thing, but it's something that reflects the thing. When you look at your image in a mirror, it's not you, but it reflects you. Right? You look in the mirror, you go, oh, that's me. Good news, bad news. (laughs) You know, it looks like you. Um, It's both good and bad. With his image, and so we're created in the very in the very image of God. We're we're the ones that are, are are to reflect Him on the earth, and this reflection takes all kinds of dimensions and 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 and, and ways. We realize that because we reflect Him, and that that we're rational beings, that we're thinking beings. We can think through something and execute a plan. That's what God can do, and and, and He says that we're to do that as well. In, in in His mandate to us, He says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all of that. And so in our subduing the earth and having dominion over it. That's a plan that we're to make. And he says, sets us free and he says, now go do that. That's what I, I want you to be. So we're rational thinking uh, beings. We have this sense that being made in his image that we have a capacity then to know him because he's put in us his image so that we can 
reflect him and that we can know him. I think it was St. Augustine in his confessions put it like this. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is true about human beings. God has made us in a sense to be, to know him, to, 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 to glorify him, to reflect him. When we're not doing that, if that isn't true for us in our experience and there's something missing in the context of our own lives. John Calvin put it like this. He said, all men are born to live to the end that they may know God. That's our, our reason for being, that we may know him. He binds us together with him. Thus, we're to know him as our creator. We're to know him as this one who is self-existent, self-determining, self-sufficient, eternal. That's how we're to know him. We're social as he is social. By that I mean this. that within the Trinity, as the old Puritan said, there's a happy society. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love and has always been love. And you can say, well, if God was the only one who existed before creation, how could there be love? To whom would God show love? Well, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is love. Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father, and all of the combinations in between. And so when he creates us in his image, he creates us as, as ones who are social or personal, who are persons, who relate to others, and who relate to others, or to relate to others, in love as God does. So we're social, so we're personal in all of that. We're moral. What God made was good. What we're to be and to do is good. We're to do that which is good in reflection of God. Ever ask yourself about your own life, who am I? We are one who's been created by this one who is God and you're made in his image to reflect him. That's who you are. And you're to do good in the midst of that because that's who he is. That's, that's who God is. God blessed them. God gave them good work to do. God made a beautiful place for them to live, that which was pleasant to sight. He blessed them together. But what I want to do today, just in the last few minutes, is set something up for the future, and that is this. And in the midst of this, there are a number of stipulations for us. We said that in covenants, there were stipulations, there were obligations, there were responsibilities. And in this creation covenant, there are stipulations. Now, the big one that comes to mind, if you're a reader of the Bible, is the stipulation where God says to Adam, you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. That's a stipulation of the covenant. And that carries with it all these dimensions of the covenant. If you eat this, you're dead. If you eat this, the penalty is dead. If you eat this from this tree, then that means you've disobeyed me. And in that disobedience, you've broken the covenant and death will come to you. Now in that stipulation, as we've said before, what God is really saying is that I, God, is the one, I'm the one who gets to determine what's good and evil, not you. You're to submit to me in everything. Adam disobeyed that. We're going to get to that later. But there are other stipulations of this covenant that I don't want us to miss. I'm just going to list them, say a little bit about them, though. They're intuitive to all of us. In fact, they're intuitive to human beings. By that I mean that human beings have within them these at least three stipulations. Not all human beings throughout history have attributed them to God. We haven't said these come from God. This is how I'm to live. But culture, society, our lives are to be governed by, known by these. 
And the first is in the area of, of procreation, of having children and being married. This idea of family. It's a covenant of creation, stipulation. God says, if you're going to, you know, I'm making you this way. I'm making you to be fruitful and multiply. And I'm making you to be fruitful and multiply in the context of this oneness relationship. Family is going to be on the earth. Secondly, he speaks to us of, of work. He says, all right, this is going to be true. You want to know where you fit in the midst of life? Well, you not only fit in family, but you also fit in the midst of working. That's good for you. You're to work. You are to, to work, Adam, the garden. You are to subdue the earth, have dominion over it. This sense of work, you're to work. And then also you're to rest. There's a sense in the midst of all of this of Sabbath. Of course, not every culture has followed this well. Not every culture has followed this as, as we should, certainly not ours. But, but we do have this sense, as you look through human history, you see family. You see this sense of work. And you see this sense of rest. And God is saying, if you want to experience life as I've laid it out for you, know these if we take this first, this one of, 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 of having children and, and, and being married and, and um, family, uh, we know, of course, that the fall has affected all of these things. We know that it's affected um, the ability to bear children. Some are not able to bear children. Some lose children in childbirth. It's, it's very sad. We know that's a result of the fall. We know that sin has entered into the race and thus this happens in the context of life and not all then are able to enjoy this. This isn't a curse as an individual person, as an individual believer. If you can't bear children, haven't been able to have children and say, what's that mean from God? It doesn't mean that God has cursed you. It just means we lived in a fallen world and he will be good to you because he is good. And in the midst of that, in ways known only to God and known only to you, God will deal and work and bring good in that situation. That doesn't mean it won't be painful. It just simply means that he will be good and is being good to you in the midst of that. We also know that not all are married in the, uh, since the fall. Some are single for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, John Stott, who was an uh, eminent fine theologian uh, and a uh, great pastor missions person and so forth and so on. Um, never married. He's now in a nursing home from what I understand. He's in his, I don't know, later 80s. I saw him uh, at a lunch uh, uh, when he was about 70. And he was asked, uh, Dr. Stott, when did you know that you were going to be single for the sake of the kingdom? And he said, about a year and a half ago. <laughs> so we don't know what that, you know, that was one of those things that, you know, came out of Jesus and, and Paul speaks to it as well. But we don't know how to put a handle on that in terms of chronology and in terms of our own hopes. But there are some who are called to be single. And if we find ourselves single, called to be single throughout the course of our lives, for whatever time period that is, it's for the sake of the kingdom so that you can get on with kingdom work and certainly he has and did but we know some are called to be single for the sake of the kingdom some are single because of uh, a divorce and death and so forth widowed widowed so that there are difficulties in the midst of this but the principle remains the same the 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 life of human beings is to be part of family to know children to know marriage in the midst of that 
And this is not something that we can neglect. You see, in the midst of this creation ordinance is defined much. It's defined what marriage is. We struggle in our own day of thinking through what marriage is, and or we don't, but people do in the course of our culture. What is a family? What is marriage? And all of that. But, but we needn't do that. We needn't struggle. It's quite clear. God says, in the beginning, this is how it was to be. Jesus reiterated that. He said, in the beginning, this is how it was to be. That a man would leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should be one flesh. There's no marriage other than that. There's no context for sexual intimacy other than that. That's the one fleshness. That's out of which children come. And, uh, and in all of that regard, we know there's sin. But still, this is the aim. This is the ordinance. This is the stipulation. This is what God says. If you want to be human, if you want to live out life, this is how all that is to be. And we neglect that at our own peril. Great danger in our society, and I'm not telling you anything even read or you don't know, is that the increasingly young people are putting off marriage till later. A generation ago in the 70s, the average age of, of, um, uh, for, for marriage of, of um, women and men was 21 and 23 years old. Now uh, I read it's 26 and 28 years old, and it gets older. And Sociologists give us causes for all of this, that young people are maturing at a slower rate and so forth and so on. The danger is... The danger is that we're missing that which God has stipulated as what is to be right for human beings. I often tell young college guys, don't stalk women, but understand it's your responsibility in this creation ordinance to be faithful to God and find a wife. She's at a great disadvantage. So it's up to you guys Step up to the plate, whatever metaphor you want to use. Man up, as they like to say. <laughs> but you have to say, man up. Um, and that's your responsibility. Don't put it off. Now, I don't have a magic age, whether it should be this age, that age, or this age, or that age, and I'm not going to give one even if I had it. I'd sell it. But, the, um, <laughs> but, but that's the consideration. We neglect these things things at our own peril. When we read the statistics about marriage, when we read the statistics about, uh, about all of that, when we watch movies where the theme of the movie is that it's alright to have a child without a father and mother. And we see that being pervasive and, and entering into our culture, we should realize we're in big trouble. Because it's counter to the covenant that God made with his creation at the very beginning. And covenants are unbreakable. They're, they're serious because it's made with this one who is self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal. Unchangeable he is. Inescapable it is. This is truth. When people want to know who they are, when people want to know how they're to live, the question, of course, is always, who gets to define that? Your passions, your own thoughts, the culture? Who is it that defines all of that? And the answer is God did in the context of his covenants. And this covenant of creation, he defines for us this whole idea of family and children and marriage and human sexuality and all of that. And he says, we break that. We've broken the covenants. Second is work. Work is a 
good thing. It always was. In the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, there was work. It was, it was a proper thing for Adam to do. If I could literally take a page out of a book uh, um, by John Murray, written in 1957, called The Principles of Conduct, he puts it like this. He says, the stress laid upon the six days of labor needs to be duly appreciated. The divine ordinance is not simply that of labor. It is labor with a certain constancy. There is indeed respite from labor, the respite of one whole day every recurring seventh day. The cycle of respite is provided for, but there is also the cycle of labor. And the cycle of labor is as irreversible as the cycle of rest. The law of God cannot be violated with impunity. We can be quite certain that a great many of our physical and economic ills proceed from failure to observe the weekly day of rest. But we can also be quite sure that a great many of our economic ills arise from our failure to recognize the sanctity of six days of labor. Labor is not a duty. It's a blessing. And in like manner, six days of labor are both a duty and a blessing. You see? It's a great blessing to work. God worked. Created. Continues to work, not by creating, but by sustaining his creation. Jesus said, I'm working and my Father is working even now. And work is good. The great danger for our culture is that we think leisure is better. No, it isn't that leisure isn't good. It has its place. But, but work is good. It brings great satisfaction. The blessing of work is to look back and see it done. The blessing of work is to look back and see it accomplished. The blessing of work is to be in it and knowing it's a value. And God says, all good work is good. So it's a value. It reflects him. And so we're to rejoice in our work. There's an old movie. I forget even the title. But, but, it's, but the scene that I remember is this older man. He's probably my age, a little older. Older man. And he has a restaurant. And uh, it's, it's, it's all the people have gone. And it's late into the night. And he's sweeping up in front of the restaurant. His granddaughter thinks he should be coming to bed. And she uh, lives uh, in his house, or in this apartment above the restaurant, and so with him. And so she looks out the window and she says, Grandfather, come to bed. Uh, uh, you don't need to work. And he just simply says, I'm blessed with work. And I love that expression, to be blessed with work. It's a great joy, really, to be tired at the end of the day. <coughs> tired from good work. That's when you sleep well. Your conscience is clear and you've worked well. And you're tired. You should be tired at the end of the day. Don't begrudge that. When the day comes to an end, you go, oh, I'm so tired. Good. The great danger for us is that we've looked to leisure, forget work, and thus we're never filled with real joy. It's a creation ordinance. It's something that's good. Then finally, this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest. God says one day in seven we're to take off. 52 days a year. That's amazing. In any culture to think that you could take 52 days off from work and still live. And so this idea of rest follows God's own pattern. His seventh day never, never ends. He ceased from creation, though continuing to work. That is, he's still active. And so when he gives the law to Moses, he says, he says just like uh, I rested on the seventh day, I made that seventh day holy. I sanctified it. So in your cycle of life, six days of work, work those six days. Not necessarily six days in the marketplace, but, but be active. Those six days producing the, with your hands. 
You'll, you'll love it. It will be good for you to do that. But remember, rest on one. And the reason you can rest on one is not only for your refreshment, it certainly is that, but also to be an acknowledgement that I made everything and that you're trusting me. So, so it's no coincidence that we gather one day in seven to worship. What do we do when we gather in one day in seven and worship? We, we cease from our labors, the stuff we do all the, every other day of the week, and we come together and we look to God and we say, wow, you've provided for us. We're grateful. You've provided for us stuff. You've provided for us salvation. You've provided for us life. And so we come with that acknowledgement, that reminder. We miss that. We'll get into this cycle of seven days of work. Or our recreation on that day of rest won't really be rest. It won't really be Sabbath because it really won't be reflecting upon God. It'll just be reflecting on fun, which is a nice thing to reflect on. It's nice to have fun. But, but, but the sense of reflecting on God as creator, as the one who sustains, as the one who is, it, it, that's what brings real refreshment to us. And then it frees us from our labor so that, as Jesus did, we can help other people. I've often said, I'll never mow my grass on Sunday, but I might mow yours. Because if you can't, I haven't been able to get to it, for some reason, I'm free to mow yours. I might not paint my house on Sunday, but, but, but I could paint yours uh, because I'd be free to do that for you, to help you. Not for pay. Well, after you see my work, you wouldn't pay me anyway. But you have to pay somebody else to come in. But, 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 but that, that sense of it, you see, it frees us. Now, please understand that we violate these at great peril, individually, as a culture, most especially as believers. I often think of young people setting out the course of their life, wondering who they are and how they're to live. And, and I love to quote, quote the title of one of Eugene Peterson's books that describes our relationship with God by saying it's a long obedience in the same direction. Right? The direction is following after God, being obedient to him, the longness of it is it isn't glamorous. It's daily. It, 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 it's, it, it's, it's putting your mind and heart to it today and living it day after day after day after day. But what I've found in all my life and in all my reading and all my discussions and all of that that confirms the very word of God, if you will, is that those who are committed to family and the course of their lives, and that's not an easy thing. We all have families. You, know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives kind of thing. We all have families. And it's draining and sacrificial and all of that. But those who are committed to family live a full life. Those who are committed to work. It's sacrificial. It's hard. It tires us. We don't always like it. All those kinds of things live a fulfilled life. And those who understand Sabbath in its fullest and richest sense of worship and reflection upon God and freedom to help live full and rich lives. The younger you start, the fuller and richer it seems to be. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you'd be with us, please. Even as we think on these things, to realize this isn't a legalistic list. This is your wisdom and thus your blessing. So please, Father, enable us to, to live this out. Father, we pray on this day 
the Melissa Foster with no rest and Sabbath. So please be with her. Restore her in her relationship with you. Not that it's broken, but she's just been through a lot. And so, Father, I pray that you would refresh her and heal her. For Norman Bev Holmesgog, Father, I pray that you would, on this day, give them Sabbath as well. They have worked. And they have loved family. So as Norm faces these days, I pray that you would give him rest. And Father, we reflect on your goodness to us. We thank you for the birth of Creighton Robert Stanhope to Sarah and Raleigh and Bob and Catherine Dinsdale as the, Dinsdale as the Grandparents, Father, thank you for that little one being born, for James, Frederick, Todd, Rebecca, and Jared's new baby, Joe and Mary Harvey's grandson. We give you thanks. Thanks for your blessing. It's just, again, evidence of your kindness to us as we live following you. You are gracious and we are blessed. Father, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Receive this as God's benediction now. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.